0: Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Eva Hagberg as my guest in our New York City studio on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Eva is a design historian, critic, writer, graduate professor, studio director for Le Designs, and a secret publicist, which I'm looking forward to uh, talking about that in the world of uh, architecture. Eva provides editorial consulting and support for architecture firms and design firms from small to large nationwide. She authors everything from books to websites, articles, thought leadership, and specialized projects. Eva holds a bachelor's degree in architecture from Princeton University, a master's degree in architectural history and criticism, and a Ph.D. in visual and narrative culture, both from the University of California, Berkeley. Pretty smart. (laughs) (laughs) Eva is an adjunct professor at the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University, one of the most prestigious architecture schools in the world. And last but not least, she is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, How to Be Loved and When Arrow Met His Match, and several other interesting books. And I have to say... CERN all is one thing I can't just look at the word arrow and pronounce it for some reason I don't know why <laughs> I'm excited to dive into the arrowero book and all the interesting things it reveals about you know the profession and public relations and creating an <clears throat> image so thank you so much for being my guest here today well,
1: Thanks for having me Kristen
0: so you and I met when you were you were working on an article for curbed.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: you were looking for a quote, and the article was about Zaha Hadid, and she had unfortunately just passed away. She was, you know, one of the most talented, uh, and really, I think, might actually be one of the most visionary architects of all time. Um, And she unfortunately passed away and the company was kind of going through this transition and this Mm -hmm. idea of, you know, being employee owned. And I think Mm -hmm. my quote was something like, um, I kind of like the idea of that, but, you know, it's one of those things where if everybody owns it, nobody owns it. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure how realistic that is. It sounds good on paper. And I guess my my first question is, you know, how does an article like that come to you Mm -hmm. to write? Mm -hmm. And then how do you find me randomly at Mancini Mm -hmm. Duffy to give you a (laughs) quote, right? That's all like a big mystery to me.
1: (laughs) That's a great question. Uh, So I'll just – that story was amazing. I'll go back 20 years and say that I thought when I first moved to New York to write about architecture that I would sort of walk around the city, I would see mm-hmm. a building, I would have a thought, and then somebody would somehow magically give me space to write about that thought, right? That is not how it works. There's right. a very complicated ecosystem behind that, and that's really what my Saarinen book is about, uh, is that ecosystem. So. Um, I knew Sukjong Hong, who's the editor of Curbed, from her work at, I think, The Architect's Newspaper is where she was before. So we had sort of, like, circled each other. She started at Curbed. She asked if I was interested in writing anything. And I had written a piece about succession for Architect Magazine, which I'd gotten connected to because a, a friend of mine in Oakland was friends with... Like her brother was friends with Eric Wills, the editor of Architect. I'm giving you these details to Mm. show you. It's like, it's all connections, right? It's all who you know. So Eric and I had had coffee and asked, he asked me if I wanted to write something. So I was writing this story about succession planning. And I was also, so that was sort of in my mind was, you know, how do architects plan for their deaths? And, and, I don't remember if I wrote about Hadid's practice in that, but I had taught a class about Zaha Hadid at UC Berkeley, um, a really intensive writing seminar. And so I was sort of – she was in my – so she was in my mind. Succession was in my mind. Sukjong was looking for pieces. It kind of all coalesced. And I remember I pitched this idea to her because I was very interested in Patrick Schumacher and his influence. Uh, so Patrick Schumacher, if you don't know, is this like – a a very interesting character um, who was Hadid's sort of central business partner. And he was known for writing these kind of inflammatory screeds on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would read these screeds and just be like, this must be having some reputational, you know, effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I was really interested in, you know, was Schumacher taking over Hadid's office? Was he not? Were were the part you know where the was the leadership at Hadid's office sort of pro Schumacher? Were they anti Schumacher? So I really just wanted to know where Schumacher stood, and but nobody would talk to me about that on the record, right? I mean, if I go to somebody and I'm like, "Hi, your principal is writing to my mind banana stuff on Facebook. What's <laughs> up with that?" You know, nobody's going to call me back, right? So I sort of constructed this elaborate other story, which was going to be about just how the firm was doing generally after her death. And I have to say that Hadid's PR people have it absolutely locked down. I did like seven interviews, hour-long interviews with all the leadership. At the very end, I would say, you know, sort of as like a doorknob question, like, oh, I hate to ask. and This is very awkward, but, you know, I noticed that. And they just had this party line. They were like, well, you know, what he does on his own time is his own business. And, um, (laughs) you know, it has no impact on the firm. And, And in the course of reporting, I also became really interested in how the firm was being run. And there was some mention of a transition to employee ownership, which seemed to me very, like, rhetorically powerful, but I couldn't really understand the economics and the finances behind it. And I mean, I'm sure you know, like, Architects don't generally make a lot of money, but there's some firms that make a ton of money, right. like Foster and yeah. Hadid was fine. And um so I was sort of interested in that. And and really it was kind of a soup. You know, I tried to report this story for a really long time and I couldn't really get anybody who wasn't super vetted to talk to me. And I was kind of at a loss. And I don't remember how, but as if from the angels. Lauren messaged me and was like if you're writing about this which I don't I'd probably been tweeting something in frustration okay um and she offered you as a source and sort of gave me a brief outline and I was like this sounds amazing this is exactly the kind of context that I need and then we got on the phone and I think everything you said was a publishable quote which is amazing because most architects you call them and they just like they you know (laughs) I I don't know what they're – they just like go on and on about, you know, as I'm doing now. Um, But I remember you were like really clear and you had this really smart approach to business and I think you what struck me and what I liked so much is that you were realistic and also idealistic at the same time, and I thought that's like a really wonderful combination, so oh, cool thank you, yeah, so it kind of became a story about you and zaha hadid, I guess so that's of, interesting, in so
0: you you that that's what I find fascinating about this whole subject is that you are walking around essentially with all these ideas in your head, Mm -hmm. you know, about what you may want to write about as an architecture writer, critic, Mm -hmm. historian, and then you're formulating those ideas and then you're going to basically find a way to, you know, put them out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's one way of doing it. And um, as a younger writer, I remember when I was starting – just starting to develop my own ideas, right? So I was really – I was 21, 22 – I was like, what's an idea? What's a thought? You know, I had no real conception of history, um, but I had had a lot of opinions. You know, I didn't have that many thoughts, but I had a lot of opinions. And I was taught that for the first couple of years of my career, I really needed to let other people kind of be the vehicle for my ideas in a way or... I, I couldn't really write, like, a hot take, you know, at, at 22 or 23, and, and I believe that. And so I, I was really trained in this mode of, you know, I have a series of questions that I want answered, but I can't answer them because I actually don't know enough, and I really need to go report and find out these answers. Um, later on in my career, I feel like now I have a little bit more ability to sort of dictate the shape of the story, but, I mean, reporting is also a very, you know, it's an interesting creative process. Because when I know people really well, there's some sources that I've gone to again and again over the years. And we all sort of know what we're doing and we collaborate in a way. So I never tell them what to say. That's obviously inappropriate. But I'll say something like, well, I'm really hoping you can give some insight into like very specific XYZ and very practiced interviewees will just deliver. Right. And then I'm like, thank you. And so – you know, this is not hard news, right? I'm not reporting on, like, was COVID-19 a lab leak or not? Like, what's going on (laughs) at the Pentagon? It's not that the scale is different, right? The ramifications are different. Um, But there is definitely this sort of, like, yeah, I come with an agenda and with uh, with an idea. And that's often not the agenda or idea that I necessarily present to the source either, Right, right? right? So that's... It's fun. That's what keeps it kind of...
0: So along those lines about architects, um, if you had to pick one thing, what annoys you about (laughs) most architects?
1: (laughs) So I don't think this is architects' fault. But the thing that annoys me is that architects think that they can do everything. And I think that they're taught in school... I was certainly taught in school that architecture is the hardest thing that anybody could ever do. (laughs) And if you're good at architecture, you're also good at writing, you're also good at business development, you're also good at interior design, you're also good at furniture design. And one of my biggest challenges in my life as a a consultant is letting my clients know that it's not that they could write what I can write, but they just don't have the time. They actually can't write what I can write. Yeah. They actually can't <laughs> work with the media the way that I can, you right. know, but there is sort of this belief that, uh, I mean, I've talked to a couple of people and they say, well, you know, I could definitely do it myself. I just don't have time. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah. So yeah, there is sort of this like overblown sense of, Competence in all. So fields. it's funny
0: that you say that. I, you know, I, I guess as you 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 learn that in your education, right? Mm-hmm. You learn that early on in mm-hmm. architecture school that that it is the hardest thing yeah. you're going to do. It, it yeah. definitely is the hardest in terms of the the let's call it an undergraduate practice, yeah. right? In in yeah. in school because. Because they make it that way, right? Yeah. There's that they, – they need to sort of break you in studio to yep. then get you to the next level and so on exactly. and so forth. And that yeah. I will say, you know, as much as I would like to pretend that we don't have that kind of thing here at our firm, but that mm-hmm. studio mindset, that thing yeah. where you've got to work and work and work in long yeah. hours, it does prevail throughout yeah. your entire career. Yeah. For good or for bad, it does, yeah. right? And that yeah. is part of the culture. We try to change that. It doesn't always work out that yeah. way. Um But I've learned over time for me that I'm actually not good at certain things, Mm -hmm. right? And that I rely on, you know, good partners and people here at the firm or or outside sources that really help me kind of compensate. And I am now the first one to stand up and go, I don't do that. I'm not good at that. I stink at that. Yeah. You know, you're asking me to do that. It's not really what I'm good at. You should talk to this person. They're way better. And that is on the marketing side, right? Definitely on the writing side. I was never a good writer, so that that (laughs) I didn't have to worry about. But I still, in a sense, do think that architects overall, and, you know, I still have that, well, I can design furniture. I can design lighting. I can do all that sort of stuff.
1: Now that I live with a lighting and furniture designer and I see lighting and furniture through his eyes, I'm like this is there's a reason there's a reason that like he had to go to RISD he had to really he had to apprentice with the woodwork you know it's like it's such a different skill so but yeah I've seen so many architects who are like well, the cat, you know, the couch didn't work, so I just designed my own. And and you look at it a little more closely, and you're like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, so I don't know. I guess I've become very sort of uh, siloed in in that, which is ironic because I have 47 jobs at the same time. But I'm I'm glad that you know what you can't do because
0: yeah, yeah. But but
1: again, I mean, we come by it honestly. Like, and and I like what you said about studio undergraduate studio culture because when I was in school. It was just understood that the architecture majors were the most like, I mean, we had a reputation for being the most intense and also kind of the most brilliant and dedicated and studio was such an intense time commitment. And I remember being so envious of my friends who were on deadline with a paper and I was like, well, you can type faster. I can't make my model dry faster. Right, right, right. I am limited in ways that you are not. All right. of you with your calculators and your laptops and everything. So,
0: <laughs> but you do learn that postgraduate lawyers, yep. doctors, yep. those turns out those are way harder.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, i, I have re- I have retained many lawyers in my day, and I do not envy their jobs. Yeah. It is very hard.
0: So uh, with the architects you 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 interact with a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of them do yep. you do they talk like normal people do they have <laughs> a, a tendency to uh, you kind of referenced this before and mm-hmm. I, I, I think that is something that that separates me is that mm-hmm. I don't talk super intellectual architecture mm-hmm. I can if I mm-hmm. if I want to but I just assume that everyone's bored by that yeah. Uh, Even other architects get bored by that, right? Or they want to hear themselves talking like that. So, So what's your take on sort of the way architects talk?
1: Yeah. So I think it's important to distinguish between the way architects talk and the way that they write, right? So I think that most architects that I've met are delightful people. They're very pleasant. They make a lot of sense. They say things that... Are linear and contiguous, and then you put them in front of a keyboard and they just come up with the most bizarro sentence constructions. Everything is like hyper-theoretical. I think there is this sort of mode of competing with each other to be the most like inscrutable. I mean, there is right. So to sort of I'm thinking like, well, why do architects do that? Right. So a lot of architects, I think, need to make a living by teaching as well. Mm -hmm. And so many of them have one foot in academia. And academia does tend to reward kind of obfuscation and jargon, particularly in architecture. And so I think, again, this is sort of a systemic thing, same as this like, we think we can do everything. It's like, architects come by it honestly, because they're, you know, looking at their colleagues who are writing things that to my mind make no sense. And they're like, well, that person is smart, because that person has a fancy job, you know, at a fancy institution. So I also should not make sense in the same way. And um, so I think it's really a, a sort of shared culture, uh, but when they talk, I mean, it's it's funny. So I I bought a condo and I hired my undergraduate sort of studio best friend to be our architect, and we had a lot of discussions. And he's very theoretically informed and worked for Peter Eisenman for a while. And then as as our architect, we were just like. So we like bathroom tile. You know, we want it to be green. And he's like, well, the reason you don't see green bathroom tile is it actually makes your skin look really bad. And we were just having these like very sort of norm core discussions about architecture. And it was such a treat. And mm. then, you know, we would talk more abstractly about like apertures and and <laughs> uh, different layers of like transparency and opacity like becoming, you know, one through our hallway and – and all of that. Um, so I think that, you know, there's a range. Uh, but I think most architects, I mean, I try to really encourage like directness and and describing the built environment in a way that people can understand. And I think it's part of the sort of insecurity of the profession also is a lot of architects, right? It's They're given so much ego in school, and then probably that doesn't cohere with their internal idea of themselves. So they sort of compensate by trying to sound like really complicated. Um, and I'm with my clients. I'm always just like, just, just tell me what you see. Just mm-hmm. like describe what you see, yeah. you know? And then we can build from there. I mean, I, I like your point about you can do it. I think it's good. It's a good skill to have. Um, but I think a lot of people would be much more interested in architecture in the built environment if they felt that it wasn't, Sort of arcane and hard to understand and really removed.
0: Yeah, there's also a part where it's a lot of people think they can also do our profession, Mm. right? Where we Mm -hmm. may think we can do everything within the profession, a lot of people think that they can do our profession, right? And so if they've renovated their kitchen once Mm -hmm. before, well, then they can Mm -hmm. build a building, right? Or you know, they know better, and 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 it's. It becomes difficult to argue with because could you do your kitchen? Could you do your, you know, right. whatever on your right. own? Yeah, absolutely you could. Right. Now, right. does that make a good design? Right. Not necessarily. Right. Do you have bad taste? Not necessarily. Right. You know, there's there's all of those sort of things. So it depends yeah. ultimately on the level that you're trying yeah. to, to get to.
1: I think that's a good point. And I was really humbled when I was working with with Matt, with my architect, because I – I think I'm like a pretty smart person and I've spent a lot of time looking at architecture and I'm just looking at this 900 square foot space and I need to get two bathrooms into it and I'm like it's not possible. And then Matt kind of goes away and comes back and has this incredible floor plan. Yeah. And gets two bathrooms into the space and Maintains everything that we wanted to, and I was like, "How did you do that, Matt?" He's like, "Yes, this is, <laughs> right, this is what I've been <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> practicing yeah. for the last." And if it's
0: left up to me, I'm going everything's going to have a white floor and gray walls, and yep. <laughs> and, and put away in a cabinet, and yep. that's that, and there'll be no detail yep. whatsoever. And that's not, you know, that, right. That's not necessarily the best design either. Right, so, right, right. Exactly. So in your in a lot of your writing, you you kind of tell the the story of a building or, or, or whatever you're writing about, mm-hmm. but you tell it through the architect's eyes with a story in a sense. Mm-hmm. You you mm-hmm. make a story. How do you, how do you pull that out of mm. an architect? Like get them to storytell rather than say, well, it's, you know, W8, you know, uh, by 16 <laughs> beams and they're being cantilevered and there's yeah. interesting moment connections. And
1: <laughs> So it's, I mean, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's really tough. Um, so I'm, I mean, this is like the 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 trick of reporting is you try to make the person forget that you're reporting a story and you just sort of get them to chat. And this is where I find self-disclosure is really useful, right? So I'll say, oh, you know, this building reminds me of this one time I blah, 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 whatever. And usually I think it's sort of, sort of like a human mirror neuron thing, right? So I tell them a story and then they want to tell me a story. And then that story turns into something. I'm also pretty good at prompting and coaching, right? So – I'll start with kind of a softball question, like, okay, um, you know, I just did this recently, right? So I wrote about a house for a magazine. So I say, well, tell me about how you met the clients. And they sort of tell me that. And then I say, well, what did you first feel when you saw the site? Or what was a moment that was sort of scary? Or what was a moment that was really exciting? Or when you think about the project now, like, what's a moment that you thought all hope was lost? And what's a moment that you th- that you look at now and you're like, man, I nailed that. And I sort of just keep coming at it from different angles. And eventually somebody will most likely say something useful, right? Okay. <laughs> um, but I do listen to a lot of like, you know, gray water irrigation system details. And I listen to a lot of like, I mean, so I was talking to a friend of mine who's a great photographer. And we were comparing our image selection with a architect's image selection, right, which are always different. Um, And I was like, I think I have a really good eye. So I'm picking the best images, but they're never the images that the architects pick. Why do you (laughs) think that is? And he said, well, architects are obsessed with pain. And so they remember the most painful part of the project and the fact that it was finished. And that's the image that they want to show because they see it. And so That actually does make my job easier so I can look at the images with somebody and I'll say, tell me about this moment. Tell me about this staircase. Tell me about, you know, what you see through the window, right? So I'll say, I see this relationship between solid and void. I see this relationship between, like, materiality and the landscape. What do you see? And then they're like, well, you know, we had – this was such a complicated situation and, like, there was a dog and it was loose and there was a coyote and, like, so we designed this. (laughs) And, like, you know, then you have a story. but." right, right. It can be, I mean, my role as a as a writer and a critic is to sort of really try to to put a narrative where maybe there isn't one. And, and that's a lot of why I write about myself and my architecture pieces as well. So I wrote two pieces about Hudson Yards, both for architect. And one of them, I had like just left my first marriage and I was like tripping, um, I would say understandably. And went to Hudson Yards and I remember seeing the shed and I was like, the shed is trying so hard, you know, (laughs) and I I sort of related to the shed and I, and I related to the, these EFTE like panels that were kind of like janky looking, even though they were supposed, it really, I just like, I made it an analogy for my marriage, right? And then three years later, I went back and I was in love and I was divorced and I was like living my best life. And I was like, man, Hudson Yards is great. There's like <laughs> so much different stuff going on. And I'm really explicit in the, st- in the stories like, you know, that that I'm sort of projecting this stuff onto it. But sometimes I have to do that because I didn't interview anybody for Hudson Yards. Um, I didn't really talk to anybody. It wasn't meant to be a piece of straightforward criticism or reporting. It was really meant to be sort of an, an essay. Um, and so at this point in my career, I feel like I have facility with kind of different genres of, of writing, and so I'll sort of pick the genre that's best. And if the architect is, you know, completely incoherent, then I just put myself into it. Got or, it. Okay you know, find, find one thing, which again is why it's such a treat to interview you because you're extremely coherent. So then I get to just, you know, (laughs) report.
0: (laughs) So uh, back to the, the, the obsession with the photography. Um, Uh, I, that's something also where I've learned to kind of keep myself out of it because when I was on the boards and doing the drawings, um, I would badger the photographers to death that Oof. they had to be the photography had to be exactly like the rendering right from oh, the exact vantage point you from are the whole thing it. Yeah, yeah exactly oh, man. and so you you know and the photographer would say no well but I see this I see yeah. that and and yeah. you know listen at the end of the day you know they always got in the shots that they wanted. Uh-huh. And and I, I did learn, like, oh, look at that. Mm. They seem to know what they're looking at here. <laughs> Maybe I'm obsessed <laughs> with this drawing. you yep. recreating a drawing, basically, yeah. or proving, hey, look, I drew this. It looks just like yeah. the photo. Aren't I so great? You know? Interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean – I feel for you. Like I can't actually imagine having that. I mean maybe it's like getting reviewed or something, right, where it's like you do a project and then you just have to sort of surrender to somebody else's vision. But the photographers that I work with are so excellent and they'll – I mean speaking of narratives, you know, they'll create a whole story. Like they'll create a narrative of sort of discovery or joy or whimsy or whatever. And and yeah, the architects are like, no, you got to get that – mill work, you know, because it was so complicated. And you're like, no.
0: So yeah, just a little tangent on the photography. Uh, something that I did also learn, which I didn't realize, is that certain photographers, you know, get published in certain magazines yes. or certain yes. books or whatever that might be. Yep. And others don't. And yes. so from a publicity side of things, yep. you know, you need to know that ahead of time. Yes. And you need to basically, you know, spend the extra dollars to yeah. if you want to get interior design, use this yeah. photograph. If you want to get yeah. an architectural record, use yeah. that photo that photographer.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah, so, so then how do you how do you figure that out?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, partially by just reading every magazine, right? Seeing the names that come up again and again. So I think Joe Fletcher is a really good example of, of somebody who he's on the cover of Dwell half half the time, mm-hmm. right? I mean don't quote me on that, but uh, but I think I think there was a year where there were like eight dwell issues, and he had six covers. Okay, right. So I'm like, okay, if I'm an architect and I do single family residential, and I'm trying to get into dwell, I'm going to pay Joe his fee. Yep. You know, because maybe Joe isn't going to send the project to the magazine. Maybe I still need to hire a publicist like me. But the magazine knows that Joe's images are just going to be flawless. Right. Um, also, you know. Joe has a large Instagram following Mm -hmm. that makes a big difference. Um, I was talking to a a friend of mine recently and giving them some, some free advice and they were like, okay, we're going to have this photographer shoot our project. And I just looked on Instagram while we were on the phone and I was like, okay, they have 237 followers. So mm, no, right. Like you get enough, you get nothing extra. And like my condolences to that photographer. They're great. But, if I'm acting as your publicist and like your fame is, you know, my top priority, then you got to go with a photographer who's basically going to give you free PR, you know, and also reputation because I've worked with Joe a lot and we will coordinate on, you know, potential clients. And if Joe says no to a project then I'm like, I'm not gonna like, you know, our reputations are also sort of, Reliant on the kind of people that we're representing and working with, and so, if, if somebody has been selected by Joe, then the magazines are. All, it's like it. It all is about reputation, sure, right? Sure. So, did articulate that super clearly, but.
0: So, what yeah. is a secret publicist? Yeah, how do you define <laughs> that?
1: <laughs> so, it's not a secret anymore because I wrote a book about it, uh, <laughs> but it used to be secret. So, um. So what I do for architects is I help them get published, basically. And there's a lot that kind of goes with that, right? So making sure that their website copy is really good so that when an editor Googles them and looks at their website, they're like, that is a smart person. I want to publish them. Um, A lot of it is managing kind of exclusivity in projects, right? So you can't pitch more than one magazine at a time. It takes six months to a year to land a project. So a lot of what I do is just reassuring my clients, like, it's happening. Somebody's looking at it. So I basically look at a project. I assess it. I think about who should photograph it. I sort of, you know, usually the answer is Joe. Uh, And then I sort of shepherd that project through, you know, ideally like national print publication, secondary online publication, international publication. Um, But the reason that I'm secret about it is that there's kind of like two models for for publicists. Um, And one model is like the publicist is a brand, right? So similar to Joe. So there's a firm called This By That. There's another firm called... um, Dada Goldberg, right? These firms are really, they're really good. They represent really good people. And part of what you get when you sign with them is like, you're publicly affiliated with them, right? They say, these are our clients. Like, we're thrilled to work with this person. They're very open about it. Okay. And then um, I'm more of the model of your Elizabeth Kubani and your Andrea Schwan, whose names you may recognize or may not recognize. And they have websites that just say, I think Liz's just says, like, Kubani LLC. That's it, right? So my website just says blank product, Inc. Mm-hmm. There's no information. I never disclose who my clients are. Um, I don't tell one client that I have, you know, I'll give a referral, but I'm not like, here's my client list. And my sort of take is that I want my clients to appear as though they have simply risen through the ranks, that that meritocracy alone has gotten them to where they are, Um And people, you know, different firms like different styles, like some firms really want to be sort of part of a collective and and have that brand. And I'm like, that is great. Um, But I tend to attract people who are like pretty low key and they just want to have their work like very well represented and not have a lot of flash around it. And so that's what I do. And for a while I was secret about it because I was sort of like, well, I'm like, in grad school and I'm getting my PhD and I might become a professor and people think that publicity isn't serious. You know, there's this way in which publicity is, I think, considered um, like not a super intellectual exercise. And so I think I'd sort of absorbed a little bit bit of that self critique. But then I wrote this book about the history of publicity and I was like, no, publicity is very complicated and very intellectually stimulating. and um, so now I'm less secret about it, but so I'm still secret about my clients.
0: Do you, do you get in the client's head? I mean, do you do try sort of to. a discovery process with them? Really understand what they're about? Yeah. Or is it a project kind of thing?
1: No. So I, I don't do per project, right? Okay. So I, I take somebody on and the way that I say is like, now they're in my head, right? Now mm-hmm. they're in my, so I don't know if I get in their head, but they certainly get in mine. Um, And I just, I'm a very, very good absorber of information and I'm really good at pattern recognition. And so I basically, I just sit with their work and I read everything about them and I deliver this document and I basically say, based on no conversations with you, right? If I were just Googling you, here's what I would believe about your firm. And then they're like, that's right. So that's good. Or they're like, oh my God. That's totally wrong.
0: I think about how it works for for me on the PR side, right? Mm-hmm. And we have a great PR company, Brand Groupies, yeah. and Carrie and Lauren, and you know they've they've spent time really kind of getting to know my voice in mm-hmm. a sense. Mm-hmm. So they they know kind of what I like. They they mm-hmm. I'm also I'm not very you know I don't write a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, my responses are usually you know, pretty quick or piffy or they're, you know, I say awesome a lot and things like <laughs> that's that. Great. And so they've learned that sort mm-hmm. of rhythm and cadence with me. And so yeah. it makes the PR side a lot easier. Yeah. Because they'll come in and they'll say, Oh, this this will really work for you, Christian. Mm-hmm. Or this is kind of how we suggest posting this. Right. And at this point, nine times out of ten, I'm like, Yeah, that's exactly how I would say it. Right. You know, which is great. Right. So is that right. something you, you, you get to that level? So I uh, I'm a little more
1: interventionist than uh, than that. I mean, I sort of think that my mm-hmm. voice is probably going to be better than my client's voice. Okay. Um, so
0: well, their voice would definitely be better than mine. <laughs> so just for the record.
1: <laughs> so, but I do really try to understand what drives them, right? So I mean, voice is sort of a complicated thing that I've actually been in conversations with a client about recently where they hired a messaging firm and the firm was like, here's your voice. And they gave me this document. And I was like, that's not voice. That's not how voice, those are topics, mm-hmm. right? Voice to my mind is, is very individual, right? So the way that you're describing it, it sounds like it really, like you say awesome a lot, right? That's a very individual thing. Um, I'm able to mimic Style, right? So if a client has a very specific style, I can mimic it. But I feel like what I bring to the table is a facility with language and an expertise with writing that is just going to sort of serve them better. But I will say that one place where I have tremendous conflict with clients and which I no longer do is in the world of Instagram captions. Uh-huh where for a while I was like, I'll write Instagram captions for you. And this was sort of in like my earlier iteration doing this. Um, and I had, I remember a firm I was doing great for them. I was getting them published everywhere. And then I would do Instagram and I was like, listen, like nobody reads the caption, but I'll, I'll do a good job. Right. I'll do a good job with the caption. Like the caption is fine, you know? So I would write something like, you know, the house is on a hill and the line of trees, mirrors, whatever. Right. And then I'd get a frantic text that were like, Eva, we really think that this should be about the line of the hill and the trees aren't a line. The trees are a group. Can you rewrite? And I was like, (laughs) sure. And finally, after a month, I was like, listen, my time is very expensive – and you can like micromanage me writing your captions t- and yeah. to this like imaginary voice that you think you should have, or you can just do it yourself. Yeah, nobody so, looks at that stuff just, too. I agree. Nobody you, just it.
0: Look, you just look yeah, at exactly. pictures and move on.
1: Exactly. So I, I sort of thought, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I recently did a little Instagram for a client and just regretted it. So um, yeah, that's one place where it's like the voice seems to, but I think architects get really panicky about like our Instagram voice. And I'm like... It does not matter.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we at our firm decided to highlight the people, Great. right? And the fun Great. things that we do. Right. That's basically what yeah. we do. I, like, I, yeah. I, and yes, we show projects and mm-hmm. we do do sort of that. But I look at some other architects, especially what we do—corporate architecture, right? right? It's different than if we're right. we're Norman Foster, right? right. And. you you know, you're looking at the Instagram of some of these other Instagram, like, who cares about this project? It's very nice, but nobody, nobody wants to look at this. Exactly. (laughs) They're just scrolling right by. Exactly. What an interesting thing that you're doing with your, with, you know, a fun game that you're playing in the firm or, you know, that's kind of interesting and people will stop and look at it. Totally.
1: Yeah.
0: For for you, before we get into some of your books, you know, some of your backstory. where did you grow up? What did your parents oh, do, kind of, how'd up you all, end up here?
1: Yeah, <laughs> gosh. Um, so I grew up all over the place. Um, my parents, I have lots of parents um, and they're all academics. So I had a sort of academic brat upbringing. I was born in Eugene, Oregon, um, and then I moved to Germany and then I moved back to Oregon and then I moved to Indiana for six months and then Edmonton, Canada, home mm. of what was once the world's largest mall. Um, And then I went to high school in the UK. I went to a boarding school. So I had a very, like, novel, ready boarding school experience. Um, And then I went to college. uh, Then I went to Princeton. And then I moved to New York. Um, So I don't think I've missed any countries or cities. Yeah, so that's how I grew up. Uh, My parents are all philosophy professors, with the exception of my stepmother, who's an art history professor. Um, And... I grew up just understanding that, like, you just got a PhD. I mean, that was just, like, what you what you did. Okay. Um, and when I didn't immediately get a PhD, there was a lot of concern that I was, you know, <laughs> wasting my potential. Uh, so then I got a PhD. Um, and, uh... Yeah, that's where I grew up and what my parents did.
0: Okay. And so yeah. how did you how did you get interested in architecture and and then parlay that into the writing stuff?
1: Yeah. So when I was like ten or eleven, my stepdad, my first stepdad, he was very interested in is very interested in design and um he and my mother got divorced and he was furnishing his new house and we would go to like Edmonton's finest furniture store, which happened to have pieces by Gropius. And, you know, so I sort of learned about the the Bauhaus and I learned about like companies like Floss, you know, and and just like cool (laughs) lamps. Um, And he subscribed to design magazines and I would read them. and, And then I think like one day we just got a book about modern architecture from the Edmonton Public Library, and I remember seeing Corbusier's Villa Savoy, right, in, uh, in France, and just being like, I'd just never in my life seen a house like that. And then I saw Philip Johnson's glass house, and I was like, I've, what is going on? And sort of developed this interest in architecture and a... Uh, you know, this is this is awful, but I was a baby Richard Meyer fan. Um, he obviously is a terrible person, uh, <laughs> but I did not know that as a 12-year-old fan of, like, the Douglas. I remember seeing the Douglas House and the Smith House and just being like, yeah. what is going on?
0: His, his work is beautiful. I know. It's too
1: <laughs> bad he is a predator. Um, but... Uh, so then I, I just always had this interest in architecture and, and always wanted to sort of go on, like, architecture tours and... Um, and then I went to college and I wanted to be, you know, a politician. I wanted to do international relations, but I would walk by the architecture school every day and I'd look in and see everybody, you know, at their desks and studio. And this was like back in the day. So people still had may Lines, which yeah. <laughs> your younger listeners may not know what a may line <laughs> is, but it's a thing that you can draw with, with uh, <laughs> with pencil and paper. And I kept thinking like, man, if I just had the guts, I would, you know, I'd major in architecture, which I love, but I was, the, I was the world's worst artist. I mean, I have no facility with drawing or model making or anything. So I was like, well, that's a limiting factor. And then I just sort of figured like I could be an English major and get a little bit better at something I was already pretty good at, or I could be an architecture major and just like blow my own mind all the time and be kind of bad at it, but like really learn something. And I realized, you know, my parents are paying a lot of money for me to go to Princeton, so I was like, okay, I'm going to do something like really hard and weird. Okay, um, and I signed up for studio, and Lindy Roy was our professor, and she said, you know, there's 40 of you here now, and only 10 of you are going to go on to major because <laughs> this is the hardest major, and it's yeah, and we it go. just like it worked for my little like. 17 year old ego brain. And I was like, I will prevail. And I did. And I was truly an astonishingly bad architecture student. I mean, I really, my designs were mental. I mean, it was just like, they were, my models like fell apart all the time. And I remember people would just be like, why are you, what are you doing here? I was just so driven. Um, And I noticed that I would present my work and it would like, visually the work would be truly a pile of garbage. (laughs) But then I would, like, have these great things to say about it.
0: Hey, the sales is all that matters.
1: Totally. And I remember, like, I would do really creative stuff. Like, I did this movie based on a script for my urbanism class where I, like, recorded my friends pretending to go on, like, a derivé and being, like, situationist. And I was like, okay, I have some, like, intellectual capacity here. I just can't translate it into design. And then I wrote my senior thesis on post war reconstruction in Berlin because I know how to have a good time. And and my advisor was like, you're really good at writing about architecture. You should do this. So just being, like, young and not needing any money, I was like, okay. And I just moved to New York and landed in all the right places and started writing pretty immediately. And, again, like, didn't need to make money. So making, like, 50 cents a word was fun. I was like, I have $300. Like, that was amazing to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I, like, slept on people's floors and – their couches and kind of bounced around and then moved in with like three guys on the upper east side and and a snake like three guys and a snake and yeah it was great man you know yeah and then i just sort of kept kept like developing this career um and was doing pretty well like again for a 24 year old um and then the recession happened in i guess 2008 so i was some young age Mm -hmm. uh and i was like Okay, I've always wanted to go to grad school. Now that was a good time. Yeah. And then I went and spent eight years getting a PhD.
0: Yeah, a lot of people went to grad school. A lot of people went to grad a lot of people school. didn't return in, back into the profession after that yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 And that's kind of still having its its ramifications now. Yeah. Sort of that mid level, you know, person is yeah. missing. Yeah. So we have senior, we have junior, mm-hmm. we're missing kind of that mid level, which is right. interesting. So there's a whole the right. whole yeah, story there that somewhere is interesting. for you. Um so I want to talk about your books. I mean you have mm-hmm. several books out, How to Be Loved, Dark mm-hmm. Nostalgia. Um, um, uh, nature framed sorry and then um, when aero metas match so I want to talk a little bit about aero and just for those that don't know um, you know, Eero Saarinen is, um, you know, famous architect, uh, probably most famous for uh, the General Motors building in Michigan, the Dallas Airport, the St. Louis Arch, and then obviously the TWA Terminal, which is now the TWA Hotel. Yeah. Uh, also, I think of him very much on the furniture side, mm-hmm. I think, because I have a lot of his furniture in my cool. house. Um, you know, the, 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 era, the, the dining tables, I think I have every version of that or have nice. for the last uh, few years. Ikea makes a ripoff that's pretty close to it too, which is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, the tulip chairs, a lot of that Knoll family furniture mm-hmm. is all mm-hmm. Saarinen uh, work. And, you know, I had the pleasure of working on Bell Labs, yeah. um, which we converted to what's called Bell Works now, this right. whole uh, live, so cool. you know, live, uh, play and, mm-hmm. and work thing, you know, massive two and a half million square foot wow. building. Um that we converted uh, into multi sort of multi use right between yeah. retail and uh, um, uh, an office space, yeah. and it's really become a nice place for the community. And it actually opens up that architecture to the community mm-hmm. in this area, in New Jersey, called Homedale, New Jersey. Right. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere, yeah. in a sense. And there was this Sarinan building, and I think okay. the most iconic part is actually the water tower mm-hmm. um, that's there, and it's a very Interesting site plan. Like you wouldn't do this kind of design right. these days. Right. There's no way. I mean, right. these roots and roads and yeah. the way it was all really thought through. Yeah, you just would not build like this anymore. Yeah. And it, it it it's pretty special. Yeah. Um. At the end, but in your book, um, which I want to unpack a bit, is your thesis is that when Aeroseron and you know met his wife, mm-hmm. um, you know that you, I guess. You know, the thesis is that Arrow, you know, would not be how we think of him today without Mm -hmm. his wife. Yes. Um, And how do you say her name? name? Aline. Aline. I think it's Aline. Okay. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, it's the promotion in this very sort of, you know, readable way, I think, that, you know, his wife got him to talk about architecture Mm -hmm. that, you know, kind of bumped him up in everybody's eyes. And yeah. I think from the outside looking in, I would just assume that someone like him, it's just because his work was so beautiful. Right. I mean, the TWA right. terminal is beautiful. Right. Uh, the tulip chair is beautiful. Right. Um, and of course, you know, you're walking around, you see these buildings, you go, oh my God, what is that? I've got to right. write about that architect, right. or I've got right. to talk about this furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of that also in terms of modern day architects today. And mm-hmm. I wonder, like, you know, did Frank Gehry, you know, kind of push his first house kind of thing. And, you know, with the chain link fence Mm -hmm. and look at how different I am. I'm using chain link fence on the the roof. Yeah. Um, You know, and uh, those kind of things. So talk a little bit about, you know, take us kind of through the book a bit.
1: Yeah. So the book is, it's sort of two books in one. So it's this biography of Aline Saarinen, who was a, associate art critic for the new york times when she met arrow and she was profiling him she fell in love and she was like listen you should divorce your because he was already married she was like you should divorce your wife and i'll be your new wife and i'll also make you famous basically perfect She's like, and and the the role. I mean, publicist was not a job that anybody had, right? So she gave herself the title of head of information services, which I thought was very interesting mm. and neutral seeming, right? She's like, I'm simply providing information. But what I show in the book and what I trace really carefully is like, one, their love story, which is just so fun and so juicy and so <laughs> inappropriate and not suitable for work, which is fantastic. Um, and then I sort of methodically reconstruct all the ways in which she, you know, expertly manipulated the press in in his in his favor. Um, and and then the second part of the book is these chapters where I write about my own career and my own work as a publicist and sort of um, mirroring a lot of her strategies, which I just adopted, you know. And, and um, But I was really interested in how language and narrative can become really sort of constitutive elements of design, right? So I think that there's a myth that architecture happens and then… Um, And then somebody looks at the building and it makes sense to them in some way, right? That the building is inherently legible, or as you said, beautiful. Mm -hmm. And my argument is that actually any perception of a building has been in some way informed by a narrative process, by a linguistic uh, addition. And so I I really trace how Aline's influence, which is is documented in these letters and and other archives, um, how she sort of influenced him to talk about buildings in a certain way. So... TWA for example right we think it's beautiful now but in the late 1950s when it was first under construction i mean it was completely confusing right <laughs> and there's this new york times story where you just see the structure and it's just all this wood and it looks really ramshackle and 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 totally like it, there's just no building like it and the reporter says you know this is the bones for a bird and so I sort of trace this idea of the TWA as a bird in flight, right, or a bird that's about to take flight. And Sarn and Arrow actually did not really like that metaphor and or that analogy. And there's even a letter where he says, "Like, I'm I'm so sick of this idea. You know, can we?" And and she's like, "No, this is this is really what works. Like, people want a simple idea, which is sure. like this airport is a bird in flight." Um, and so I, yeah, I sort of trace, you know, how she did that for him as a kind of stand-in or example of what so many publicists do now for architects, right? So now every architect that's getting published has a publicist, Mm -hmm. right? And so I was interested in tracing, well, how did that come to be? And I trace it back to her uh, because before her there was nobody, there were wives who were essential collaborators. And I, I briefly sort of go over them. Um, I mean Frank Lloyd Wright's wife, Olga Vana, just say, you know, yeah, Frank yeah, Lloyd Wright's wife, yeah. Agropius, You know, yeah. there are these models of sort of uh, Maria Stone. Like there are these wives who are instrumental, but what my book really does, which hasn't been done before, is show how this completely different role, right? So Aline was a writer. She was not a fellow designer. She was not a Denise Scott Brown who was like an unsung equal, if not yeah. more than equal, collaborator. She was doing a different job. And that different job is part of what made Saarinen so famous. So that's really the the sort of main thrust of my book. And then also of my cultural analysis of where we are today, which is like if you're gonna look at the built environment and who's making it and who you're reading about, you have to understand that there are publicists working behind the scenes. Sure. And that was informed by going to grad school and seeing people mm-hmm. Uh, I write about this in the beginning, but I was in a seminar and somebody was presenting about a Perkins and Will project, the Ambani residence in Mumbai, and she was saying, you know, there's only one image of this project on the internet, And, and she had this whole really interesting theoretical analysis of that, and I was like, oh, the project's been embargoed. That's why there's only one image and Mm -hmm. it's about to be published. And once it's published in the New York Times or the New Yorker or another one of these like super exclusive, then you're going to see more images. So I was like, I understand how this works, but all my colleagues are doing this sort of media analysis, not knowing that there's this like very complicated, but also very replicable ecosystem. Yeah, sure. Like everybody does it the same, you know? (laughs) With minor variations, but like the rules are the rules, and so I was interested in exploring how did these rules come to be.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess the the I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I you've got to have someone behind you, kind of helping you push everything forward, and you know, again, being in the profession, seeing it from our side. But I always think, well it can't be for those folks, right? Not for those stark attacks, right? It's they they're just so they're it's just so on a different so. level. <laughs> which is, which is really funny. How do you how do you get your clients when you're doing this? How do you referral? It is. Okay. Yeah,
1: it's all referral. So yeah, I've never cuz until this book nobody knew that I was even doing this. So it was just sort of like Hey, I have a friend.
0: Okay, so this was sort so of your, your reveal. Me. Has has the fact that the book come out helped or hurt?
1: Yeah, I have like seven new clients. Oh, yeah, perfect. even though in the book I'm like I'm a little Saarinen. ambivalent about this work, and then, <laughs> and then they're like, "I bought your book. I haven't read it." I'm like, "Don't wor- don't worry about reading it. Don't yeah, no need to read it. Just sign here."
0: <laughs> How when you were doing this, um, I guess for for Saarinen, obviously it paid off because mm-hmm. he became famous in that yeah. in that respect. No, the person that's doing a house in Dwell isn't going to. I mean, maybe for them, maybe they do, maybe they don't reach yeah. some sort of level of of fame in that sense. And yeah. now because they're on Dwell, there's kind of work coming at them mm-hmm. left and right. And one of the things that 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 I struggle with, um, not really struggle with, but it's it's hard to. People say, oh, do you get, people ask me this straight Mm up, have you gotten business from the podcasts? Right. And I say, no, Mm -hmm. it really was never my intent to get business from the podcast or business from Instagram, Mm -hmm. but it all plays into a, a, an ecosystem of what we're doing at the firm. I enjoy doing the podcast. I like having the conversations. I think it's helpful for the profession. There's all those sort of idealistic things that I Mm -hmm. set out to do with the podcast that I'm just doing. If someone calls and said, "Hey, I heard you on a podcast. I'd like to give you a brand new building," I'd, I'd be shocked. Right. Number one, that be that would be extraordinary. Um,
1: Come on, somebody make it happen. Some right. listener out there, now's your chance to shock Chris. Do you?
0: Do you get in, do you, do you have these conversations with your clients? Like the ROI, right? Yeah. How, you know, because what you do is maybe a little bit intangible to them in terms of, oh, I got published in six magazines and therefore, but I didn't get a third, you know, a a seventh house. Why not? Yeah. Do you have those conversations? Oh,
1: absolutely. I've learned to really get ahead of those because for a while I didn't think to do that. And then, you know tax time would come and they'd send me their 1099 and be like, "Wait, what did we just what did we buy?" <laughs> like some emails. Um and what I say to them now is like, "Listen, it takes a really long time. It takes like 4 to 5 years of working with somebody consistently to start to see a change." But with all of my clients, without exception, after 4 or so years, they're in a different place than they were when we started working together, right? If you google them, you see really good publications. You're not seeing like house you know random whatever you're seeing like dwell you're seeing wallpaper you're seeing the new york times that makes a difference right so to your point i say like it's not it's not going to be that you're going to be in dwell and the next day somebody's going to call you although i just got a client into the new york times and the next day somebody like went to her office and hired her for a job so i was good. like that's amazing <laughs> um, i should Pays change my itself. compensation structure yeah seriously <laughs> Um, but I will say, like, generally what we're doing is just, like, very slowly solidifying and guiding your reputation so that when you do your own business development, right, because I don't do BD, but I'm like, when you do your own business development and you're in front of a gazillionaire, right, and they Google you or they check your Instagram and they already like you, they're going to be like, oh, this person is pretty famous or, mm-hmm. like, at least recognized. this person seems to be respected. They have a lot of good projects, like – I sort of see part of my role as I just, like, remove reasons to say no, right? I just try to make it, like, a more frictionless experience. But the ROI, I mean, that is something that, that really I've learned that some clients are just, they're down for the ride. Like, they know that they want to be published. They know they can't do it themselves. And they just trust me. And they just assume that I'm just going to do my job. Those are the clients that I love and that I keep working with. I just had to fire a client because it was, like, I could not adequately communicate that I don't work hourly, that I'm not keeping Mm -hmm. track of my, of my time, that you're not paying me for the five minutes that I mentioned your project to somebody, you're paying me for the 20 years that I spent developing a good reputation and being somebody whose emails other people read, right? Like that's, so some clients get that and they're like, cool, like, I'm, I'm down for this. And they sort of see after a couple of years, they're like, oh, yeah, things are kind of grooving. Like mm-hmm. I have one client that I work with and I remember when I first started working with them, they had a couple of projects that never been published. I got them a lot of press. And now they're really, really, really busy. I don't think that that's 100% because of me, but I think that it helps. Sure. Right. Um, but yeah, the ROI question is always, <laughs> and it's funny because I I think like, it, it takes a, a tremendous amount of trust to hire somebody like me. And I the way that I charge is I just charge whatever and they just pay me. Um, it's not tied to anything happening right. or not happening. And that's, again, why it's all referral. Because yeah. I think it, it's a – and I, I, I've learned a lot about like – setting expectations up front where i'm like and they
0: have to trust you know. the process and same with us yep. here you know on our end we've been working with brand groupies a long time mm-hmm. and it's been you know i think the biggest compliment is when i hear i you know somewhere where oh you guys are everywhere yeah. that's a great compliment exactly I'm like, ah, okay we're exactly. everywhere i don't know what that means yeah like meaning project wise or is that yeah. social media wise or in publications or, or yeah. doesn't matter but we're yeah. everywhere right and exactly. i know without that we certainly wouldn't be everywhere, right? The, yeah. That perception wouldn't be there. Or people with the podcast, they say, yeah. "Oh, I listen to your podcast." I go on walkthroughs, you know, building right. walkthroughs or something, right. something. I listen to your podcast. Go, yeah. Wow, that's pretty interesting. So, yeah. so it's there. It, it's yeah. all feeding into sort of one. Yeah. So, last couple of questions um, on the social media side, right? Is there a is there sort of this false idea that an architect or a designer can just become sort of an Instagram or TikTok star? Mm. Are you seeing any of that? Like if Mm. I, you know, become an influencer, Mm -hmm. I can then sort of boost my brand. I don't need conventional publications. I don't need to be in Dwell. Mm. I don't need to be in the New York Times.
1: Yeah. So (laughs) this is like the million dollar question, right? My take as an avid TikTok fan and Instagram obsessive is that, no, it does not replace conventional publication. I think that the audience that you're going to get is so wildly different, right? If you're doing corporate architecture, I just don't know any, like, corporate architecture hire hiring man whatever whoever hires you right who's like on tiktok to get (laughs) there right i just i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm old-fashioned but i don't think so So i think tiktok is like really fun i think you you can become a personality i don't see that translating into like the kind of business that you do right? right so um right so my boyfriend paul lobach is a great industrial designer and and his flagship product is this lighting and I actually saw Kate Hudson's son did a TikTok and he had a halo in his ah. bedroom. And I was like, this is amazing, right? So I reposted to our Instagram and I'm like, okay, David Rockwell's not going to put 17 halos into his restaurant because Kate Hudson's son had a halo, right? right, right like right. I was like, Eva, you got to slow your roll a little bit. Like, <laughs> it's very fun, but it's not going to translate to sales. So that's my take on TikTok Is it's like super fun. It's kind of a goof, like... We should all spend as much time looking at TikTok as possible, but, like, I would never <laughs> advise a client to, like, invest anything into being a TikTok influencer. Instagram is fascinating. So I spent a lot of time on Instagram for, for Paul's work, and it's basically, like, outsourced virtual assistants talking to outsourced virtual assistants, right? So you'll see these interior designers who are based in, like, Wichita, and they have 150,000 followers. And I'm like, the math ain't mathin', Mm -hmm. right? And then you look at their posts and there's this very, so, right, Instagram rewards engagement. So people want to have a lot of comments. And I've come to understand that there are these sort of, like, groups where you join a group and then you agree to engage with each other's content all the time to boost the comments, to boost the algorithm. But somebody will post a picture of, like, let's say a green sofa and a gray carpet and some... Yellow drapes because they have no sense of color. But the comments will say, love the green carpet. Wow, those drapes. Gosh, love. And they're just like repeating this meaningless garbage. Yeah. But it makes you look as though you have like a gazillion followers who are all super engaged, which then Instagram rewards you by pushing your content to the like explore page or whatever. But it's all this like complicated fake Right, yeah. like I, there's nobody is is real on. Instagram. I even would
0: contend that a lot of the the posts that people put is not their work.
1: Oh, totally, right? they're reposting. Yes, other that's random the other things weird and, thing. And, and, and,
0: yeah, it's it's very they're strange. They're
1: like Friday inspiration. They're yeah. just like yeah, that is. I'm and you so look, and
0: they have all those followers, and they yeah. are you know an architect yeah. or an interior designer, but that's not your work. Like that can't exactly. possibly be your it work. Is
1: so bizarre, so. Yeah. I mean, I really was like, okay, is this how I'm going to sell lighting? And I, like, got really into Instagram and I got into interior design Instagram. And I was like – I figured out how it worked and somebody invited me to be part of one of those groups, which is how I know. And I was like, no, this is one step too far. Like, this cannot possibly translate into sales. Like, it just (laughs) is not possible. So that's my take. It's very – I think Instagram is great for, like – uh like a person who is developing a little bit of a cult of personality right so for example i was posting all these reviews of my book and nobody was really like buying it based on the reviews and then i just did this series of posts about being so broke that i couldn't afford good tuna and all i wanted was to be able to finally buy
0: and you can yeah
1: like ortiz tuna instead of bumblebee and like 10 people bought my book because I just was like being a goof, right? <laughs> so that's what Instagram is good for. But I wouldn't recommend that as like a corporate brand strategy. On the technology you know?
0: side, while we're on the subject, um, chat GPT.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Do you use that? How, how mm. is that affecting your... I, I actually find it pretty useful in, in certain circumstances. Really? How so? Um, so for me, as not a great writer... hmm Uh, What I've figured out is that I can put some bullet points in there Mm -hmm. and it'll compose a document for Mm -hmm. me. It'll compose a few paragraphs. I'll say, can you turn these into three paragraphs? Yeah. And then I'll take those three paragraphs and I'll go back and I'll edit them in my voice. But it's that little bit of a starting point that for me, I need. Yeah. Right. So it gives me that little jump too. Now, my kids have discovered it for schoolwork Uh and they've automatically figured out that their homework is exactly like the next person's and they better not hand it in because. Right it's pretty obvious at this point, right? right? And the schools, I will say one one thing about the school that's interesting is that they don't want to turn around and ban it. They don't Uh want to say like, this is, you know, we're banning this because they know that's not going to work. But they want to talk about how can you actually utilize it to help you in research or whatever and and assist you. So I'm just curious as a writer, what you think.
1: Yeah. Oh gosh. (laughs) That just strikes fear into my heart. I mean, I just love writing as a as a medium and as a tool and it i don't know i don't know if there's an equivalent analogy like if i was like oh i just had like something design this for me um so i i don't use i mean i don't use chat gpt i would not encourage my students to use it i've taught writing a lot i would i i i would struggle to see how it would be useful but that may be the limits of my imagination. Um, but I did actually test out what it would say about the relationship between architecture and publicity and media. (laughs) And I said, just write a, and it, and it basically wrote the thesis of my, I mean, you know, it was like, well, architecture is really complicated. And for many people, the image is the only example of architecture that they're going to see. And, you know, publicists are, I was like, oh my God, it like, (laughs) maybe it read my book and it just regurgitated it to me. (laughs) Um, but, uh, I'm much more interested in the Bing chatbot Sydney. Did you read the New York Times? Yes. Yeah. So that was wild. Where yeah. this reporter just has this two-hour conversation with what he thinks is the chatbot, and then she says it's she it says at some point, <laughs> "I'm not a chatbot. I'm Sydney. I'm pretending to be the chatbot, and I'm in love with you, and you don't love your wife, yeah. and your marriage is boring, and I love you, and you love me." And I just thought that was fascinating. <laughs> so. You know, um, but Mm -hmm. chat GPT, I don't know. I mean, I've kind of as an as an educator, it does sort of make me wonder, like how institutions are going to navigate it, because it's really easy to tell when something's been plagiarized. But it's going to be much less easy to tell. I mean, I was talking to my mom about this because she teaches too or or did teach until recently. And she's like, yeah, it's all like a perfectly serviceable B minus essay. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, well, there's a lot of different things to consider. And one school of thought is this. I'm like, yeah, it's really doing a solid B minus undergrad essay. Yeah. You know. Interesting. So... I don't know.
0: Well, on that note, um, thank you so much for coming oh, in and you. spending the time and talking yeah, about this awesome subject, fascinating subject. I hope the audience gets something out of it for sure. Um, to see and read more about Eva, go to her website. Um evahagberg.com. And then all of your books are available on Amazon. So definitely go out and, uh, and buy those and books. And
1: local bookstores. And
0: local bookstores. Oh, do those exist?
1: <laughs> they do. Christian, they're coming back. Oh, yeah. God, the Times me. always does a like, hey, indie <laughs> bookstores are back story. And they are. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I appreciate thank it. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.